SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On SAFM. A keen scholar of social development who we have had on the show before. Professor Graham, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Sengezo, and hi to your listeners. Thanks for having me on the show again. Welcome back. It's good to have you when we can get deeply cerebral, but at the same time, we need to unpack some of the challenges that young people are facing because this is less the time to be all intellectual and more the time to probably be real, first of all, with the issues, and more importantly, if one might say, the road ahead. So where are we in relation to economic and social inclusion for young people post-COVID-19? What is your research telling us so far? Well, we um, we hosted a webinar today and actually profiled a number of people's research as well as some young people's voices um, during the webinar. Um, and so uh, when, I, when I talk, I must reference uh, the people who've actually done that work. Um, but what we're seeing is obviously that young people are severely affected, particularly by the economic fallout. Uh, the quarterly labor force survey, for instance, uh, showed us that of young people who were employed before lockdown, and we know that that number was already really low, um, around a third of 15 to 24-year-olds um, that were employed lost their jobs, and 14% of 25 to 34-year-olds lost their jobs, and that's uh, compared to 10% in the general working age population. So. Although the economic fallout has been really hard for everybody, we always know that in times of economic crises, young people are first affected and worst affected. Um, And we're definitely seeing that in the numbers and in the stories that young people are telling us. When they are telling these stories, emotionally, where are the young people? Does their body language betray, if you like, the uphill battle it is for them in the circumstances? Absolutely. So, so we've got some quantitative data that was conducted by colleagues at Saldru at uh, UCT and some qualitative data that was presented today by a colleague, Professor Malosi Langa at um, Vitz University. And what we see in both sets of data is that, uh, that young people are really facing quite serious depressive symptoms. Um, so generally, when we look at national level data sets, um, prior to lockdown, and we ask questions about depressive symptoms, we see that the um, that young people generally don't report high levels of depressive symptoms. But during the period of um, April, May, during the lockdown, um, colleagues at UCT definitely did see that uh, between 18 and 44% of young people were indicating that they were experiencing negative emotional well-being for a prolonged mm. period of time. And if we comp- comp- uh, have a composite picture of that, we're actually seeing that um, that those figures are about 72% would, would be demonstrating depressive symptoms if we look at all of those depressive symptoms together, which is a massive number, um, not something mm. that we've seen before. Um, and that was also corroborated with research that was done by the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. So very serious mental health consequences for young people as well. I'm asking that question because 
I mean, this is is of course Mental Health Awareness Month. And even if you took away the mental health aspects, which are now very alarming in the light of the figures that you've just drawn our attention to, just alone the economic and social challenges that they face as a result of COVID and the despondency in the markets and in other sectors of development and training, if you like. If you add now this burden of mental health into the fray, it almost just doubles, if not triple, the burden ultimately on the state. And I include you and me in the state because ultimately somebody has to carry that burden and help feed its resuscitation. Absolutely. And the thing is, these are, these things are so intertwined. So, for instance, if we look, if we look at those figures from uh, from the colleagues at Saldrew, um what we see is that there's an interrelationship between the mental health and the depressive symptoms. And, for instance, so we saw that young people who were in tertiary education were more affected. Young people who were in matric were more affected, which you can understand because there's whole high levels of anxiety around what does this mean for my future. You know, I, I've struggled to get to matric, I've struggled to get to university, and now how am I actually going to complete and what does this mean for my future? Mm. So absolutely. And, and I think one of the major issues with mental health in our country um, and particularly for young people, is that there's just not sufficient services for mental health um, at community level, certainly. And so the support to get through the situation and to manage those emotions um, is really limited um, and therefore uh, compounded because we're not putting in place the right measures to support anybody mm-hmm. and young people in particular through this from a mental health point of view. October is Mental Health Awareness Month, but right now a discussion with Professor Lauren Graham, who is the director for the Center for Social Development in Africa at the University of Johannesburg, talking all things economic and social inclusion for young people post-COVID-19. I would hate for it to be just a conversation between ourselves because we don't want to talk about it. We want to talk with those most affected. So please do call 891 especially the young people in university, the young people in matric, the young people who find themselves not in employment, not in education, or not even in training, who haven't a clue where to next, be it for their next opportunity in employment, in education, or similar training, or even for food, because we know, at least by the reports that are coming out thick and fast, that COVID-19's impact is deep, it is meaningful, and it will, for a bit at least, stay with us. After the break, we continue the conversation with Prof. Graham. Please dial. SMS SAFM now on 41391. The three-part webinar series sheds light on the impact of COVID-19 on young people's lives, the economic lives, and more broadly, the social inclusion. Young people have struggled with social and economic inclusion for the longest of time. Of course, it has been made worse by COVID-19. Earlier today, there was a webinar, Stroke Seminar, that looked at where the challenges are that have emerged and what has the pandemic further highlighted. We further look into what researchers are picking up in the data and our speakers unpack survey results 
of a study done by the Southern Africa Development and Labor Research Unit. That's SALJU, to which Prof. Graham has referred to in her early statements this evening. This, of course, in partnership with UNICEF. Please say more in relation to now the interrelatedness of the work that the Center for Social Development at the University of Johannesburg, SALJU, is doing together with UNICEF. What is the end game? Once you have all of this material, how do you propose it should then if you like, be made practical for the interventions that it would invariably identify. To whom will it be presented? So we've been working, even before COVID-19, we've been working with a consortium of partners um, to develop what we're calling the basic package of support for neat use in South Africa. Um, And it works from the premise that... um, Access to employment and education is not simply a journey of a work seeker or an education seeker. It's the journey of a whole young person, a young person who experiences multiple challenges in their life, but nevertheless demonstrates a great deal of resilience and agency. Um, and, and what we're seeing in the data is, is that those interconnections between mental health and health and education and employment. And what the basic package of support does is... It connects young people who are floundering around trying to figure out what is the next step. Um, And with very limited support, we connect them with um, understanding where they are in their life, where they want to get to in their life, and helping them with referral to the next best um, available opportunity or service that can help them on that journey. So understanding that that may be a referral to mental health support, it may be referral to health support. It may be referral to caregiving support if they are caring for children in the household or older people in the household. Um, before we can then say, okay, let's look at what an employment or an education journey might be for you. So really trying to, at the very local level, connect with young people, understand them as whole young people who have an immense amount of resilience, but who nevertheless need support in this journey. So we've been working with a consortium of partners and in partnership with the Presidential Youth Employment Intervention, um, and we're getting yes. ready to roll out a pilot next year, which we're really excited about um, putting out there in, in Cape Town and in Johannesburg and testing uh, what, what the results are going to be. So in essence, the basic package of support is the interface to help connect between existing programs, services, and resources together where they are most needed by that particular individual. And I understand it is a two-pronged approach. Would that be correct? Absolutely. And it's from the premise that we already invest a huge amount in support services for young people, whether that's higher education, technical vocational education and training, um, employment support, um, the employment tax incentive. So there's a lot already out there. The problem is that those those systems and programs are not particularly well connected, even for somebody who has access to information and, and knows how the systems work, they're not particularly well connected. From the point of view of a young person, it's very difficult to understand if I go through this opportunity, what is next in my trajectory? And so this program is intended not to create a new new service or a new training program, but to provide the guidance to help young people access the right opportunities for them at the right stage in their life.
Let's talk about the fact that there are many programs that currently do exist. I'm actually, I'm, I'm asking this question in relation to essentially what I pick up being the fragmentedness, if you like, of these existing institutions. And the BPS is basically a way of bridging um, that fragmentation. Off the cuff, or top of my head, you've got the National Youth Development Agency, Umsobovu Youth Fund, to a large extent, the National Empowerment Fund, you've got the Presidential Yes Campaign, and you've got all these many learnership programs and internships through the CEDARS and the CETAs, CETAs in particular. How then, in the complexity of this that you are lamenting, could we have such grave numbers when in reality, all it ever would need for the most part, not for the complete part, but for the most part, regular or, or rather regulated and integrated government work so that you've got less of these 10 million youth falling through cracks. They really shouldn't be falling through. I mean, take, for instance, as an economic indicator, how CETAs could help absorb a lot of these young people, oftentimes skilled, but simply without an opportunity to enter the markets, who would be useful to enterprise given the fact that it is a tax deductible, how do we move away from always having to lament the fragmentation in government programs or in public programs? Absolutely. I think uh, that's the major issue is that there is so much out there, but it's that, that fragmentation. And we know that government departments are not particularly good at working across sector, but um, they do work in, in silos. And that's not just true of government departments. That's true in civil society as well and in other sectors. And so it really is about how do we create incentives for departments and organizations to work in a collaborative fashion. Um, I am encouraged by the Presidential Youth Employment Intervention um, as an intervention that really is trying to connect the dots. And it's driven by the presidency. And the message is you de the departments need to be working together. How do, we, how do we develop systems where departments work together better um, and where there are collaborations between state and civil society that work for young people? And we're starting to see that being championed very much from the office of the presidency. Um, and that gives me hope. Um, that needs to be sustained, and it needs to be a way of delivering services going forward. Um, but from even if we get that right at the national level and we get departments working together, that doesn't necessarily mean that Absolutely. a young person understands the, those connections and how best to string them together to, um, to, to make their journey towards work work for them. Um, and so I still think that that interface at the local level, that youth-facing programmatic is still necessary to help young people understand those. I have to admit that as a person with a PhD and a university education, um, I tried to string together what an education pathway might look like. And for me, it was very difficult with access to information mm -hmm. Um, because of all the rules and regulations. And for somebody who's just come from school, perhaps who comes from a family where family members have not had access to tertiary education or further education and training, it's a really complex maze to navigate. Um, and, and having somebody to, to help you through that journey really just spurs that agency along and, and makes that potential come alive.
I want to probe this issue of cascading, if you like, the programs down. You mentioned the fact that it's working well, to your experience anyway, in the presidency, which is nice. But, I mean, that's attached to President Ramaphosa himself. And you also lament the fact that not enough of these programs are localized, not felt, therefore, where the need most where the need is most dire. So I'm going to return to the question of cascading such programs down where then you can localize solutions to those problems that exist in the particular societies, as may be the case. We do have a voice note, Prof Graham. Please listen to it and respond. Good afternoon, Songhez and South African. Thanks for bringing this, Professor Professor Gray. She is very in point, yeah, very pragmatic in point. Was you find that the way they're explaining these facts and figures, they're on point. But now they are they are, they are blushing us. Uh, they are kneeling us as well because they are figures, but they're not doing nothing. The dysfunctional is it of, of of social development, and it is expect. I remember when I was in 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 in, in Free State Kronstadt level one, level five lockdown. I was locked down. They doing my studies. They didn't have any funding up until now. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm still they 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 rejected by SLD grant. Did you, you can see that these people that we are still bringing their putting their philosophical point of view. Yes, they do make sense. But for us, no, I don't think they, 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 they're making any change. In fact, they're incompetent and, and time wasters. Prof, it's all yours. So if I heard correctly, there was some kind of, he was talking about um, being at university and not having access to funds and trying to apply for the SRD fund, uh, the, the SRD grant. And I think that's a really important point is that the, I think the, the, the response from a grant point of view has been mixed. On the one hand, it's been quite impressive how the government was able to increase the grant to respond to the crisis for existing grant holders. But the introduction of the Social Relief of Distress grant to a wider range of people was, from what we're hearing, quite problematic. And in our webinar today, we had uh, a young person who talked about trying to access the SRD grant and, and coming up against corruption, not at the state level, but at a prior company that he had applied for work at, um, who was now claiming that he was receiving UIF so that they could get the TERS grant. Um, and so the, the rollout of the SRD grant has been quite problematic, um, and that has impacted quite heavily on, on young people because young people... Many young people who haven't been able to access jobs or who are trying to, to get into university or, or, high, or other forms of training do a lot of what we commonly call hustling, you know, odd jobs here and there to bring in a living. So they're informal workers. They should have been eligible for the SRD grant, but we're hearing quite a few stories of young people saying that they were turned away from that. And so that is something that requires further investigation going forward, absolutely. Perhaps but even, it's able but to point to the fact that young people yeah. are excluded from the current grant system. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing in this, in this period of COVID is how important it is to have some kind of safety net that can kick in in situations like this and quite quickly respond when people yeah. are cut out of the informal labor market. Look, I'm not going to ask you about grants because I think you and I might differ if the last conversation is anything to go by. But I do actually, on that point, the availability of the grant or funds for the grant, whichever it is, and the cascading effect of 
such programs really need to be localized. The problems of Soweto cannot be the problems of Bambirstadt, cannot be the problems of Umlazi, cannot be the problems of Kwanongoma, Kwazakela in Port Elizabeth, or Kayamnandi in Stellenbosch. So surely at a local municipal level and the stakeholders around that particular municipality, such programs could be more unique, number one, and therefore more direct stroke targeted for the purposes of not having the kinds of economic and social exclusion that we see in young people. Mm, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, revolutions that happen at national level inevitably either don't reach local level or take an extremely long time to reach local level if they do. Um, And so it is absolutely imperative that while we are fixing connections at the national level, uh, service delivery needs to be working at the local level. And so part of our design of this basic package of support for for NEET youth is to develop what we're calling a... um, community of care or a continuum of care where we are bringing together local level service providers to understand the experiences of young people, to get them to buy into um, a process of um, better service delivery for young people and where we feed data into that system so that they are able to learn from um, what they're doing, what is and isn't working. And that's something that we're going to have to test going forward and see whether it works at the local level and certainly how to adapt it for different kinds of localities. As you say, mm-hmm. you know, what works in the city of Joburg, in a ward in the city of Joburg, is not necessarily going to work in um, a rural area where there's far fewer services to yeah. refer young people to. Let's leave it there then, Professor Lauren Graham. Thank you so much for your time. Director at the Centre for Social Development in Africa, University of Johannesburg. One webinar done. Two more to go, I understand, yes? Yes, and please, uh, anybody is welcome to join us. They can find the in, in information on our website, uj.ac.za forward slash CSDA. The next one is in two weeks' time, and the last one's on the 4th of November. And there we're going Indeed. to be looking at solutions. Today was about what are the problems. The next two are about solutions. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. It's 2036. Time for a conversation on the Cleanup Squad hosting its fourth annual long walk after this.